All right, ladies, let's go ahead and find our seats. We're about to start the next session on overcoming depression and anxiety. We will have maybe one more small break. We need to catch up on a little bit of time. We'll have another break later. If you haven't gotten a Q&A question in yet to the turquoise um, little basket out there, do that. Um, during this next coffee break that we will have because the Q&A, we will go straight from session four into the Q&A uh, by 2.30. But uh, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed lunch and are ready for the next three se or two sessions. Now it's green. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. Okay. Um, all right, this lecture is on depression. And <clears throat> included, I included in on this a section on anxiety because anxiety is a huge contributing factor to depression. And what I would like to do is just kind of walk you through a case study that I just made up. <laughs> I called her Depressed Debbie, so if your name is Debbie, I apologize. I'm not talking about you. Um, I just did it because it kind of went D and D, Depressed Debbie. And um, so I would like to tell you if somebody comes to me for counsel and she's depressed how I would gather data what questions I would ask her depression can be complicated and it's not usually a simple thing and it's not usually just one little thing it's usually a bunch of things kind of coming together how I would give hope to her, that's especially important with depression. How I would teach her the basic biblical principles from the scriptures. The word of God is alive and powerful. <clears throat> and apart from medical issues, it is sufficient to deal with depression. And then give you some practical application that I would uh, help her with using the scriptures as the basis. So the story is, Debbie comes to see you because she needs help. She has on no makeup. Her hair has not been washed. She has dark circles under her eyes. She's frequently sighing and there are tears in her eyes. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you ask her what's wrong, she says, I often feel sad and unhappy but lately it has been far worse than usual. I can't eat, I can't sleep very well. I don't want to be around anyone. When my husband goes to work and the kids are in school, I go back to bed and just lie there. I don't answer the phone, I have no energy. I feel as if I'm going to die. I feel guilty 
because my husband has to go to the store for me and he does the cooking and takes care of the kids. My mother comes over and helps clean and wash clothes and iron. There are days that I simply wish I were dead. I have prayed and asked God to help me, but I'm only getting worse. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Well, the symptoms, if you read in the psychiatric uh, diagnostic and statistical manual, the symptoms of depression, they say they feel no pleasure in anything. They have an increased or decreased appetite. Insomnia, they can't sleep, or hypersomnia, they sleep all the time. Decreased sex drive, loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness, difficulty concentrating, vain regrets, thinking about things that may have happened years ago, and that you just play it over and over and you regret that that happened. possibly suicidal thoughts or attempts, fearful diurnal mood variation. That means your mood is the worst in the morning and then it gets better as the day goes on. So basically, when I'm gathering data with somebody who's depressed, I, I have a whiteboard in the office at church that I have and uh, I write four causes of depression and then I ask questions over those four causes. One cause are circumstances. It could be something traumatic that happened to them, death of a loved one, financial difficulties, some sort of trial, some sort of tribulation. I'm I just say what's going on in your life, what's difficult, and usually they'll have some one or two things that go under that. And then another cause of depression is our physical causes, like some kind of illness or sleep loss, or maybe even a reaction to a medicine Medicines have side effects, Um, poor diet, vitamin deficiency, anemia. If they're anemic, they're they're weak, they're tired, they don't feel good. Uh, Hypoglycemia, that is a low blood sugar, will make you feel bad. It used to be that a lot of people were telling me they had a chemical imbalance in their brain. Now, scientists have proven that that's not true. That's not causing depression. So I don't hear that so much anymore, but the psychiatrists and the doctors are still giving them the antidepressants. But there may be physical causes. There may be, they may be in pain. They may have arthritis. They may have, if they have seizures, they will have to be on seizure medicine. Seizure medicine has a big side effect of depression because it suppresses the brain. So um, there may be some things under the circumstances, some things under the physical, 
Another cause of depression is bitterness. Now, bitterness, of course, is a sin, but it's such a huge contributing factor to depression that I separated it out. Uh, the emotion they feel is hurt. So I will say, who has hurt you the most? And sometimes they'll say, well, my brother or my husband or my sister or whoever. And then some people say, well, nobody really. So I don't, if they say nobody really, I don't write anything in there. But if they, when, it, when you say who has hurt you the most, if certain people come to mind, I will write those names under there. And then the fourth cause is sin in general. Now, guilt over sin can cause depression. And so I will ask them, is there anything in the past or anything that you're doing now that is that you feel guilty about? And uh, sometimes they'll say no, nothing. And then sometimes they'll say, well, Ten years ago, I had an abortion, or I divorced my husband and I shouldn't have, or whatever they tell me. Um, psalm 32 is a psalm of David, 1 through 5, verse 1 through 5. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit when i kept silent about my sin my body wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand he's talking about god's hand was heavy upon me my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer and and david here in this psalm he's talking to god and he said, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So other, just a general list of sins, gluttony, irresponsibility, anger, lying, immorality, envy, Self-pity is a huge contributing factor to depression. Some people have a bent towards feeling sorry for themselves, so it's easy for them to slip into depression. Stealing, deceitfulness, rebellion, complaining, worry, or anxiety is a huge contributing factor to depression. Selfishness, inferiority judgments. Inferiority judgments are when you think about yourself and you say, well, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I can't do anything right. You're just putting yourself down. Vanity, uh, not being content. Vain regrets, we talked about. Lust, um, any kind of sin. And then sometimes I'll say, is there anything else you haven't told me that I might need to know? And then they 
tell me what I should have known all along. <laughs> the, the one thing that I really need to know, but that happens sometimes, but not often. Well, no matter what is causing the depression, and they'll be able to see from what we've written up on the board for these four causes, it's not just one little thing that is causing you to feel or be depressed. It is a combination. Some of the things we can, like if it's a physical thing, maybe that can be dealt with through the doctors and you can feel better. Uh, but if it's sin, then it can be repented of. God will help you. And there's nothing that we can do that God won't convict us of and then um, forgive us and help us of our sin. So they, people who are depressed need hope. And the psalmist struggled. There's, there's three um, people. There's more than this in the Bible, but there's three people that I just... Um, usually go to and explain to my counselee, uh, let me tell you about these three people that are in the scriptures and that they are struggling. Psalm 42 is, and ultimately, each three of these that I'm going to talk about overcame their depression and despair because they turned to God and they began to think rightly about God and act rightly. Psalm 42 said, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. <clears throat> While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I, he, this, the psalmist remembered when he was happy. I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. So he's, he's vacillating, going back and forth. Why are you in despair? My hope is in God. I remember when I had joy in the Lord, and he goes back and forth. And then another person that I show them is Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet, and uh, he kept God kept telling him to tell the Jews that if they don't repent from their idol worship, they're going to be conquered and taken off as captives and slaves, and some of them will be killed. And 
he warned them, but nobody believed him. And they didn't turn from their idol worship. And then finally, King Nebuchadnezzar came down from Babylon with his army and did exactly that. Jeremiah got swept up in all that, and he ended up in Babylon uh, there as a captive from Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah got to really feeling sorry for himself, and he describes this in Lamentations chapter 3 about what he's going through, what Israel is going through. He, he said things like, in chapter, verse 6, In dark places God has made me dwell, like those who have long been dead. He got really morbid. His wall me in so that I cannot go out. He's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He had, a, he had a lot of anxiety. Back in Jeremiah's day in Israel, they had lions and bears that were just wandering around wild. And you could walk through the woods, and one of them would, could just jump out and attack you at any moment. He felt like God was doing that to him. He has made me like a bear, he is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. So, and he, he said, people are mocking me all day long. And in verse 18, he said, so I say my strength has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction, my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. But then his circumstances didn't change. But he remembered something. And he said, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses that word loving kindness in the Old Testament is has said it's, it's covenantal, eternal love of God. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And then he just starts praising God. He said, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. So we've seen the psalmist who's going back and forth. Why are you in despair? Hope in God. And then Jeremiah just remembering something about God rightly, and he starts praising him. And then we turn over to Second Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul um, went through a lot of suffering for the Lord's sake. And he, um, let me find this, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> Paul did not feel sorry for himself. 
because he had a godly balanced perspective on the trials and suffering that he was going through. Second Corinthians 4, starting in verse 8. He said, um, we are afflicted in every way. So he's not exaggerating. People were trying to kill him. They were... He, he, they, they stoned him one time. I mean, he, he really was suffering for the Lord's sake. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. See, he had a godly, balanced perspective. Perplexed. At times he didn't understand what God was doing, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body, the physical body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He, he knew that eventually he would give his life as a martyr for the Lord, but he didn't know when that was going to happen, and it could have happened at any moment. So death works in us, but life in you. But then he concludes this section in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. For though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now listen, this to me, this is astounding, this next verse, how Paul describes this, what he was going through. For momentary light affliction... All right, I would not have called what he was going through light affliction. <laughs> but this is how he perceived it. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen that we can see, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So he's seeing his suffering as glory, glorifying God, and God had an eternal purpose for that. So then, so we have the psalmist. In Psalm 42, we have Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, and then we have the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. I would show her many verses that would give her hope. We've already looked at Romans 8, 28, and 29, so I won't go over that again. We looked at Lamentations 3, 21 through 25 just a few minutes ago. Uh, this is when Jeremiah said, um, Great is thy faithfulness. He remembered something, therefore he had hope. And then 
1 Corinthians 10.13 is a really, really good um, hope verse for all of us. 1 Corinthians 10.13. This is a promise for Christians. It says, No temptation has overtaken you. Now, that word temptation in the Greek, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, can also be translated pressure or trial. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be pressured or tempted Beyond what you are able, but with the pressure or temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it or bear up under it. So God is not going to let you be pressured or tempted beyond what you're able to bear. He will help you. And then, of course, the greatest hope that you could ever give anyone is the gospel. It is her only hope and truly is, as the Apostle Paul wrote, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's Romans 1 verse 16. Now, I have um, written a Bible study called the Salvation Worksheets. I wrote it years ago for my parents, and I think hundreds of people since then have been taken through this Bible study but um, it's a free download it's supposed to be a free download on my website it's a blog site and I don't know how this happened but somebody captured it and now you have to pay money so don't pay any money for that it's free the gospel is free but uh, I have an email address on there, on that uh, site. So if you want the salvation worksheets, email me. I'll send them to you, and it won't cost you anything. Um, and then Stuart Scott has a gospel presentation that's free from his 180counseling.com, and it's really, really good. So anyway, that the people that are depressed, no matter what the reasons are, they need a boatload of hope. And then uh, a couple of illustrations, one from Jay Adams, the depression spiral. The uh, dots along the top of the page, or the illustration, are your emotions. That you feel good and you're happy and everything's fine. And then the big X is something happens. It could be death of a loved one. It could be a bad diagnosis for you. It could be you have a flat tire. I mean, it could just be your, your kid has a temper tantrum in the grocery store. We talked about that earlier. But your emotions will go down. And so they're down, and then that first arrow, I think, is a critical point because you may not have done anything wrong or sinful, 
But if you blame God, if you get angry at God, if you're saying and doing things that are sinful, then you're going to, your emotions are going to go down again. And then you'll eventually reach a point where you're not functioning. You're not doing your responsibilities. You're not going, taking care of your family. You're not working. You're not whatever you're supposed to be doing. Eventually, you get all the way down to what I call the pit pit of despair. And probably you may be even suicidal at that point. Well, obviously from the pit pit back up to where your emotions should be is going to be a long distance. But I tell my counselees, the Lord will help you, I will, and I will help you too. And then <clears throat> as you grow and learn in, from the things of the Lord and implement them in your life, eventually you will come back up to where you're supposed to be emotionally. Now, if... And two things are going to happen here. It's going to take us a while to get back up to where you're supposed to be for the Lord to work in your heart and in your life. But the next time the first little blip comes and you have a bad day or you have a headache or something terrible happens, you, you'll have the tools from God to know how to come back up to where you're supposed to be without having to get all the way down to the pit of despair. And then a sorrow fills your heart illustration. Lou Priolo is the one who made this one up. And he said, if you draw a heart, and if you're a Christian, you have a capacity to love God and love others. You've got the peace of God. You've got joy in the Lord. And if something happens difficult and puts you in a trial, if you don't respond in a godly way, this sorrow, Jesus said, sorrow has filled your heart. He said, Jesus said that to the disciples when they panicked, when he said that he was going to be killed. So it crowded out all their love for God and their joy in the Lord and love for others. So as we obey God and honor God and go against how we feel and do what's right, whether we feel like it or not, our love for God and others will grow and suppress down the sorrow to just a small part of your heart. And I call that a manageable level in your heart. Jesus had godly sorrow. Remember he wept over Jerusalem? He wept when Lazarus died. So we help people to kind of see the big picture here. As they grow in love for God and love for others, which is the two greatest commandments, their 
sorrow is going to be godly instead of sinful. And then I would question my counseling for suicidal thoughts, desires, or plans. I would want to make sure that uh, if she is suicidal, that she's got the help that she needs. She may need somebody in her family to be with her all the time. She may need to be in a psych hospital. It's illegal to commit suicide. <clears throat> so as a counselor, I can't keep that a secret. I, we sign a confidentiality <clears throat> agreement, myself and the counselee, that she understands that I will keep what she tells me confidential unless she tells me she's going to harm herself or harm someone else. So that I can't commit to keeping it a secret. So some of the things that I would have her do is number one, fulfill her responsibilities regardless of how she feels. It's gonna be hard for her at first because if, you, if you've ever been depressed, you know how hard it is to make yourself keep going and functioning. I would be very specific about her responsibilities. I might say, write out a simple menu list for tomorrow. Go to the grocery store and cook supper for your family. Now, it doesn't have to be a fancy supper. It could be boiled hot dogs and potato chips, but something for them to eat. Get up no later than 7 a.m., take a shower, get dressed, and call me as soon as you're up. Uh, a lot of single women that I have counseled that were depressed, I make them call me every morning at 7 o'clock. And I'll say, if you don't call me, I'm calling the police. Well, they don't want me calling the police. So they get up and they, they go against how they feel. But then each morning, they begin to feel better. Maybe write out a thankfulness list. Learn how to think biblically. Um, I didn't talk about the Attitudes of a Transformed Heart book, the purple book out there. But... Some of you have already studied it. Chapter 9 is how to think biblically. And a lot of times I start my counselees who are having struggles with their emotions out with chapter, I started with chapter 9, how to think biblically, and then different heart's attitudes that come from that. Um, I will assign them a self-talk log, and that sounds like this. When you feel sad or overwhelmed or anxious, uh, any kind of painful emotion, write down for me what you're thinking. Write your thoughts down. And if you find yourself repeating your thoughts, because we do repeat our thoughts and think habitually, uh, you can stop, but then bring that list back and we will go thought by thought and see if, it's, if you're loving God with this thought and if you're showing love to others with this thought. Renewing your mind. And then number seven, 
Now, this is not initially with the depression, but eventually find someone to start giving to, thus taking the focus off themselves and putting it on showing love to others. Most of the time, I will ask them to go to a doctor and have a complete physical to make sure there's nothing physically wrong that is contributing to the depression. For example, um, hypothyroidism will cause a side effect of depression. Some of the homework I might give them to do is read little little booklet by J. Adams Christ and your problems that will give them hope. Wayne Mack has a really good book, Out of the Blues. It's easy to read, it's very engaging, and it's really great. And then I would put them on a schedule. Uh, not a rigid, tight schedule, but an hour-by-hour hour schedule. Check off when you're doing your responsibilities that are listed on this schedule. Uh, DBR is daily Bible reading. And we start out in the book of Psalms. The Psalms are God's tranquilizers. And if you have trouble concentrating, read out loud. Stand up and read out loud. That'll help you to concentrate. Pray every day, ask God to help you see your sin and responsibility, help you to repent. We talked about the self-talk log. Scripture memory. There's a verse in Psalm 34, 4, that I love. David wrote that psalm, and he said, it's simple. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he took away all of my fear. Now, when David wrote that, he was running for his life. When I quote it, I'm going to the dentist. <laughs> but it's the same God and the same kind of fear. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He took away all of my fear. Psalm 34, 4. First Thessalonians four or five, somewhere in there, it says, Be thankful for all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So those two verses are two things that somebody who's depressed will struggle with. Trusting God by Jerry Bridges is a beloved book. It's been out for years, and um, if, it, if it is appropriate for the counselor's situation. I may have them read that. My Precious Truths in Practice is also the, the same kind of thing. Attitudes of a Transformed Heart. Elise Fitzpatrick years ago wrote a book, Overcoming Fear, Worry, and Anxiety. That's a good book, and I recommend some of her older books that she has written. So, let's talk about dealing with anxiety because it's a major contributor to depression. Now, anxiety can range from a slight, easy, uneasy feeling to a full-blown 
panic attack. Now, the biblical antidote to fear is trusting God. The psalmist said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. So now I'm going to not read all these verses because we don't have time. But you have your notes and you, I want you to go back sometime next week and read over your notes and look up all the verses. But fear keeps us from fulfilling our God-given responsibilities. Matthew 25, verse 24 through 26. Um, that Peter got caught up in that because he was afraid of what the Jewish believers, Christians, would think about him eating with the... Um, and then he also was afraid when he, he lied and told the uh, people when Jesus had been arrested that I don't know him. So fear can keep us from fulfilling our God-given responsibilities. Secondly, fear may contribute to a person sinning. Genesis 26 verse 7, Isaac told King Abimelech that Rebekah was his sister. He did not mention that he was, she was his wife because he was afraid that, and he learned that little trick from his father, Abraham, who did the same thing. Number three, fear can cause us to deny our Lord and his word. All right, this is Matthew 26, 69 and 70, that's when Peter denied the Lord. So, 10 solutions, biblical solutions to fear. Don't sin and cause yourself to be a hypocrite. Galatians 2, 1 through 13. If you are sinning, you have to be afraid you're going to get caught. Secondly, remind yourself of God's word. Genesis 32, 7 through 9. Uh, Jacob, when he was coming back home uh, with all of his wives and children and flocks and all that, the last thing his brother had said to him before he left, when our father dies, I'm going to kill you. And I don't blame him for having that attitude towards his brother. But um, anyway, Jacob was afraid, but he kept kept going and doing what God wanted him to do to go home. And he, he kept reminding himself, now, Lord, you told me this and you told me that. And... Um, God didn't need reminding. God knew what he was going to do. Number three, be wise and make responsible decisions. If you make foolish, impulsive decisions, you're going to worry about it. Or maybe it might backfire on you. Number four, realize the power of God working in you. Second Timothy 1, 7 Number five, fear the Lord and delight in his commands. Psalm 112, verse 1. Number six, realize that God is with you no matter what. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art 
with me. Number seven, trust God to keep his word. Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4. And then number eight, seek after the Lord. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he took away all my fear. Number nine, overcome fear with love by focusing outwardly to others instead of being selfishly inwardly focused. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And then number 10, do what is right, whether you feel like it or not. Now, one of the things that I teach my counselees how to do when they have anxiety is an anxiety journal. Now, they come back and they've written out some thoughts that are fearful thoughts or depressed thoughts or whatever. Um, I, I wrote an example here. It says, I cannot bear to be alone. What if my husband dies? So at the top of the page, each journal entry has one page that they fill in. The top of the page, you write the thought that is you're making you afraid or depressed. I cannot bear to be alone. What if my husband dies? And then we go to Philippians 4, and we go through the steps of exactly what Paul tells you to do when you're anxious. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. So turn it around into a prayer and supplication. A supplication is a humble request to God. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then there's this promise, supernatural promise, and the peace of God which suppresses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we've got the fearful thought at the top, and then the first part of the anxiety journal is a prayer. And it has two parts. Lord, my request is, the first part is my request is, and then the second thought is, Thank you, whatever that you're thanking him for. So with, if your fearful thought is, my husband is going to die, I'll be all alone. Um, and I'll ask her, what is your request to God? And she's going to say, well, my request is he won't die. And a lot of times I'll say, well, is he ill? No. <laughs> Usually not. Uh, so, Lord, my request is that my husband will be well and that I'll die before he does or whatever she wants to say. But you, with a request like that, we can't know what God's will is. So she can say, she has to add, but whatever would glorify you the most in my life. So my request is, and then 
thank you. She might say, thank you that I've had him for all these years. Thank you that he has taken care of me for all these years. Thank you for reminding me how much I need you. So I like that. Thank you for reminding me how much I need you. And then we pray in Jesus' name. So the biblical prayer is simple, but this is what Paul said. If you're anxious, don't be anxious, but instead pray a humble request to God with thanksgiving. And here's the promise, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. And then verse 8, he talks about um, instead of thinking the thoughts that you're thinking that are making you anxious or depressed, think these kinds of thoughts. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, all right, a true thought is something you know to be true. If she says, I just know my husband's going to die and I'll be all by myself. And I'll say, do you know that to be a fact? Well, she'll say, well, no, I don't. So it's not a true thought. He may, he may survive, out-survive you. Whatever is honorable, think of that as God-honoring. Whatever is right, think of that as not sinful. And I won't go over all this, but then if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, excellent and praiseworthy thoughts point to God. So <clears throat> this thought needs to be changed. The wrong thought at the top needs to be changed to be God-honoring and excellent and praiseworthy thoughts. Most of the time, our fearful thoughts leave God out of the picture. And so it's easy to panic when we don't bring God into it rightly. So I will say, okay, based on this criteria, <clears throat> what, and this is spelled out greatly in Chapter 9 of the uh, Attitudes book. Hold on a minute. Sorry. Um, what thought could you replace the thought at the top with? <clears throat> Here's an example. My husband is alive and still with me, but if he does die, God will at that time give me grace to bear up under it. <clears throat> God's not going to give her grace to bear up under something that's not even happening. So, 1 Corinthians 10.13 would be what she was thinking about when she said, God will, at that time, give me grace to bear up under it. <clears throat> what happens to people that are fearful, they have a concern, and then they think about it, and sometimes it's just, they just make stuff up and project it into the future and assume that that bad thing's going to happen. And when 
they dwell on it and think about that. I just know this is going to happen. I just know blah, blah, blah. Um, <clears throat> God's not giving them grace to deal with something that's not true, that's not real, that they're not really facing. So um, we have to renew our minds and we have to put on the God-honoring thoughts, the right thoughts, the true thoughts, the excellent and praiseworthy thoughts. And then third thing, so we have the prayer, the biblical thought, and then the third thing are the biblical actions. Does somebody have a Kleenex I can have? Oh, wait, I think I have one. Hold on. Yay. All right, I'm going to turn around and blow my nose, so don't listen. That so many times in front of so many thousands of people, it just doesn't bother me anymore. <clears throat> All right, the third thing in the anxiety journal are the biblical actions. And that's verse 9. Paul said, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So, if she's fearful, if she's depressed, what things, practical things, can she do for the Lord that would be pleasing to him? And then do them. Uh, if I'm counseling her, one of the things she can do is do her homework because I assign her homework uh, each week from the Bible that she is to accomplish. <clears throat> so, anyway, if somebody's depressed, there is just not usually a one thing there. It's usually several things, and we'll just come up with a biblical plan of action with how she should approach each of those things and what she should do about them. <clears throat> so let me just conclude by saying what happened to depressed Debbie. Debbie became a Christian soon after the counseling began, and then the scriptures began to give her hope. It was very difficult for her to begin to fulfill her responsibilities, but her mother continued to come over for a few days to be with her and lovingly encourage her to do her work. Within a fairly short period of time, Debbie began to feel better. She had a glimmer of hope. And typically, within about six weeks, she was well on her way to becoming stable. Debbie began going to church. <clears throat> That's one of the things we require for, with our counselees. They, if they don't have a church family, they have to come to our church. They don't have to join our church, but while we're giving them free biblical counseling, they have to uh, attend church. Or if they do have a church family, they have to go to their church. Um, now Debbie is a member of her church and an active participant. 
her eight week after eight weeks of meeting with her biblical counselor, they both agreed she need only come every other week uh, for about six weeks. So it's common for my counselors to make rapid progress if they really are born again Christians, if they know the Lord. And uh, then we taper them off, like instead of seeing them every week. Now, if somebody is really, really in a bad situation, I have seen one counselee three times a week. Now, that's not common, very uncommon, but I have had to do that some. Does Debbie ever get depressed now? Of course she does. She feels sad. Her natural sinful bent is to feel sorry for herself and to worry. However, when she does that, she now has the biblical understanding and the supernatural grace of God to, res to recover before she spirals down into the pit of despair. Debbie, if you questioned her, she would tell you that now instead of her tears being her food day and night, she is now hoping in God and praising him, her salvation, and her God. So let's pray. Father, I'm just reminded of how many, many, many women over the years that I have counseled and just giving them hope from your word just changes their mood changes their thinking, changes their heart. And I'm reminded of a lady I sat next to on a plane going somewhere one day, and we got to talking, and she found out I was a biblical counselor. She poured her heart out to me about how anxious or depressed she was, and all I did was just give her some a little bit of hope from the Bible. She grabbed her napkin and a pen and started writing down the verses. And you could just see her countenance change. She was so excited and it gave her hope for the first time in a long time. And I pray that we will learn these things and that we will take them to our hearts and just ponder them, think about them, jot down a list of the scriptures that stand out to us and that you will use us for to help other people, even if it's just grabbing a napkin on an airplane and writing down a few scripture verses. Lord, we love you. Thank you that your word is alive and powerful, and it does judge the thoughts and intents of our heart. And I pray that you will help us to think right thoughts, good thoughts, praiseworthy thoughts of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you. Yoo-hoo, ladybugs. Let's get started. I have a plane to catch. <laughs> My daughter and daughter-in-law had this idea. Then they were so excited about it. And then they called me and they said, um, we want to have a tea party with all the girls, the grown um, <clears throat> girls, and Anna and Jamie, my daughter-in-law, and, and they said, we want to have it at your house. <laughs> and I said, of course you do. <laughs> and then they said, we want to have it on Sunday afternoon. That's tomorrow. So anyway, I'm going home to the tea party. But <clears throat> I did mention to them that they have to bring the food <laughs> because I'm not in town. <laughs> so anyway, we're... And then my granddaughter, who's a sophomore at Kennesaw State College, she's majoring in nursing, I get this text from her. Did I tell you about it? She said, um, Grandmama, if a, f a friend of mine has a question, if she's dating a guy, does she have to be submissive to him while they're dating? And I said, No. <laughs> That's for marriage. And she said, I thought so. <laughs> so anyway, they're funny, the things they talk about. All right. This is my favorite part of this, the goodness of God. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. For part of my childhood, for five years, we lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and <clears throat> neither myself nor my parents were Christians. But I remember one time my grandmother from Alabama came to visit, and <clears throat> one of the sight I was just a little girl, but one of the sightseeing things we did was visit the National Cathedral in Washington. And it's a great big church, and it's beautiful. And in there, now, that many years ago, I don't know what it's like now, they had a book store. And we went in the bookstore, and my grandmother bought me a children's book of prayers. I still have it. It's a great big book. It's got color pictures. It's so pretty. And it's got children's prayers in it. Um, there's only one of the prayers that I remember, and you probably have heard it too. It goes, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. That's what it says in the book. Now, children may repeat that simple prayer, but sometimes when they grow up, they change their mind about how good God really is. The goodness of God is a topic 
that is greatly misunderstood and people use it to malign him, even blaspheme him. If God is good, why didn't he, why did he do this to me or why did, whatever. For those not persuaded of the goodness of God, they may be emotionally unstable and are not grateful to him. So this is a critical teaching in the Bible for us to understand for ourselves and to be able to help other people. So for this lecture, I want to cover several things. I want to give you an overview of this very broad term, the goodness of God. List several biblical principles. When, when I do a study on something like this, I look up every word in the whole Bible that has the word good or goodness in it. And then I come up with several principles um, there. So we'll see that. I wanted to give you a glimpse of how King David, I didn't realize until I did this study how much David brought up the goodness of God in his writings. And David had a whole heart for God and how he viewed God's goodness. And then, of course, we'll see our ultimate example, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the good shepherd. So, and then we'll end with, in view of all of this, how should God's goodness affect our hearts and our thinking? And then, Lord willing, we will go into the... Uh, Q&A. So don't ask me too many hard questions because I've been up here all day long. All right. Let's start with the goodness of God as a broad term. God's goodness is seen in the creation. It is seen in his sovereign rule over his creation. It is seen in his holiness and righteousness. It is seen in his loving kindness, benevolence, and mercy towards us in salvation. And it is seen in his law and his word. So, some of the biblical principles on the goodness of God. First thing I found out was that God made a good creation. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And behold, there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Psalm 145.9, the, the Lord is good. 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving so very simple God created or God made a good creation point B God gives good gifts um, Joshua 21 verse 45 not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass um, <clears throat> Job 2, verse 10, you know, all the things, terrible things that happened to Job. And his wife 
her advice was, well, just curse God and die. That was not good advice. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we we receive good from God and um, shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 11, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then Philippians 1.8, Paul wrote, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then James wrote in chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, God gives good gifts. A third Biblical principle on the goodness of God. Point C, God uses evil and turns it to good. Now, this is astounding to me. I mean, it's just only God could have thought this up of how he did this. But in Genesis fifty twenty, this is what Joseph said to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive because of the um, famine. And then, let's see, this is point C. I had to write them all out because it would take forever to look them up. Hebrews 12.10, this is the section when God disciplines those whom he loves, the believers, for they, our fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And then point D, God's promises are good. Um, Let's see. Well, oh, there it is. Psalm 84, verse 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 7, and there's the context of spiritual gifts. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So God's promises are good. And then point E, God is good. As ex- and we express that to him in worship. First Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then Second Chronicles 7, verse 3, When all the people of Israel saw the fire, Come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. 
They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 119, verse 68, talk, Psalmist is talking to God, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Lamentations 3.25, remember <clears throat> Jeremiah was lamenting his situation and then he recalls something. He said, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And then Jeremiah 31.14, I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord, declares the Lord. So God is good. And then point F, God's name is good. Psalm 54, verse 6, the psalmist said, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Point G, God's nearness is the psalmist's good. Psalm seventy-three twenty-eight. But for me, it is good to be near God. And then point H. God's law is good. First Timothy one eight. Now we know that the law, God's law, is good. And then point I. God's word is good. Hebrews six verse five. There, that section is the context of it. it's impossible to restore those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and then have fallen away. And then point J, God's goodness passed before Moses. Moses asked to see God, and God said, you can't see me directly, you would die. But he, he turned Moses around to where in the cleft of the rock, and then God passed his goodness before him, behind him. And then point K, God's goodness is great and abundant. And then point L, God's forgiveness and steadfast love is equated with his goodness. Psalm 69 verse 16, David wrote, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good, according to your abundant mercy, turn to me. And then point M, God's salvation is good news. Uh, we're coming up on Christmas, and in Luke 2.10, the angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then in, uh, let's see, I think this is Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And then point in, God's sovereign hand is good. Ezra 7, verse 9, Ezra was sent to teach the people for the good hand of the Lord was upon him. And then in Philippians 2.13, Paul wrote, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his 
good pleasure. And then Ephesians 2, verse 10, God's goodness is shown in our good works, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then I want to talk for a minute about David's view on the goodness of God, because when I went through all those verses, I couldn't help but notice or be struck by David's view. Um, I was particularly intrigued by that. Point A, God who had a, David, I'm sorry, who had a whole heart for God, longed to see the goodness of the Lord. He looked forward to being with God in heaven, and he saw God's goodness in this life on earth. And then point B, The goodness of God is a recurring theme in David's psalm. Psalm 73, 6, that we just love and are so enamored by. But surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David also wrote Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And then Psalm 25, 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And then one of my favorite, Psalm twenty-seven, thirteen, David wrote, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then Psalm 31, 19, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. And then Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. And then Psalm 68, 10. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. And then Psalm 145, verse 1 and verse 7. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then Psalm 145, verse 8 through 10. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. David, the shepherd boy of Israel, not only saw the Lord as good, but as his personal shepherd. Uh, you can go back and read later, First Samuel seventeen twenty through 37. This is when David, he, David, you know, killed Goliath, and uh, 
He, as a shepherd, he killed lions, he killed bears, he protected his sheep. And he is the one, David is the one who wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So our ultimate example of God's goodness is our Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. So in John 10, tells that story. Now, shepherds take care of their sheep. They risk their lives for the, for the sheep. Um, they, back in the day in Israel, the, the, there would be a shepherd out with his flock of sheep. And, of course, the shepherd had to get rest, too. So they would, a bunch of shepherds would bring their flock to a central place where they had a wall and there was one gate, one door to get in that wall and they would put all the sheep in there so that the shepherds could rest that night. So when the, so Jesus tells this story about this and the people vividly would know what he was talking about because he they saw it every day. But in John 10, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. And then Jesus explained in John 10, starting verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and we'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, think false teachers when you think about that. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then going back uh, in verse 4 to, in John 10, when the shepherd has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. When the shepherd, the next morning, he would come through the door and call for his sheep to come, they would know their shepherd's voice, and only their sheep would come and follow them. Um, Jesus explained further, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, um, <clears throat> I read Randy Alcorn's book, on heaven, and uh, Randy Alcorn can't write a little book. He writes big books. But anyway, 
there was one quote in there that I thought was really good. There's a lot of quotes in there that are really good, but this one in particular, he's, and he's talking about why when people, Adam and Eve sinned and then God uh, punished them and we're all in related to Adam, God, he said, God planned a measured punishment for the first human sin. And that measured punishment is suffering. Now, <clears throat> God could have just killed Adam and Eve and just wiped them out, and there would have been no history of mankind. But he, in his kindness, he didn't do that. Alcorn said, had God meted out the full and immediate punishment, the first humans would have died on the spot. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In that case, there would have been no redemptive history, no human history at all. The fall, the first human tragedy, became the mother of all subsequent ones. We should do nothing to minimize it or to pre pretend it mattered less than it did. Yet the fall did not end God's plan for humanity. God would ultimately use evil to accomplish the greater end of redemption in Christ. Now in Ephesians 1, it says that God did this according to the counsel of his will to the praise of his glory. In other words, Alcorn said, God could hate evil and yet permit it to carry out an astounding, far-reaching, redemptive plan in Christ, one that would forever overshadow the evil and the sufferings of this present world. Now, I just loved how he said God planned a measured punishment. So he does, he has to punish sin, he's holy. So either Christ took our punishment, he bore our sins in his body on the cross, or we have to take our punishment. But God in his kindness planned out that people could survive and that some, all who will trust Christ and Christ alone, that they will be saved. So Roman numeral number six, how can our hearts be renewed to be God be renewed to view God's goodness rightly? There is a gal in our church. Um, she's I'm kind of sort of mentoring her and bringing her along because she's a lot younger than I am, and I'm not going to be there forever. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so she's helping. She's co-teaching my classes with me. And so I put, I have to color code it. This is Martha's section. This is Mary's section. We just go back and forth. But whenever I have one of my charts on the, the bad side of the chart, I assign that to Mary. So she has to read the, the wrong part, and then I correct it. So I, I just love it. <laughs> But anyway, 
So I made this chart, and I divided it into, on the left side, the heart of sinful man who is wise in his own eyes, and then on the right side, the heart of David, who is longing to see the goodness of God. So the heart of sinful man would say, if there were a God, he would not permit me to suffer like this. David would have said, there is a God and he is good to comfort me in my suffering. I, and this is the Apostle Paul, I can cast, or Peter, I can cast all my anxieties on him because he cares for me. And sinful man said, if God were good, he would alleviate the suffering we are undergoing. David would say, I know that God in his goodness and kindness is using this trial to somehow make me more like Christ. It is for my good and his glory. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, of course, that's what the Apostle Paul wrote. <clears throat> Sinful man says, there is no God. If there were, he would not permit bad things to happen to good people. You ever heard that? Well, David would say, there is a God and he is good. The wonder of wonders is that he did not immediately kill Adam and Eve when they sinned. Instead, he let us play a part. Now listen to this. God let us play a part in the temporary suffering in this sin-cursed earth so that we can long, like David did, to see the goodness of God. And then... Sinful man would say, it makes me so angry that God is permitting this suffering in my life. David would say, Lord, forgive me for being angry. Thank you for reminding me how much I need you. Sinful man would say, why would God do this to me? David would say, this is good for me, or God would not permit it. It reminds me what the psalmist wrote, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And that's Psalm 119, verse 67 and 68. Sinful man would say, I must come to the place where I forgive God for all that he has done to me. David would say, God forbid that I would ever think such a thing. Thank you for this trial and thank you that it is temporary and being with you is for all of eternity. Thank you that you are giving me grace to bear up under this. 1 Corinthians 10.13 and 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Sinful man would say, my God is good. He would never send anyone to hell. David would say, this is God's creation. He made us, and it is his prerogative to have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. This is Romans 9. He is the potter and we are the clay. What is so amazing is that he saves anyone, including me.
Romans 9, verse 14 through 16. And my favorite one on this list, <laughs> sinful man says, at least I'm being honest about how I feel. <laughs> that just cracks me up. Anyway, David would say, what I'm doing is honestly sinning. There is no merit in thinking my feelings justify resenting what God is doing in my life. Lord, forgive me and use me for your glory however you see fit. Give me the heart of Job when it was said of Job. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And that's Job chapter 1, verse 22. I remember... Um, as a new Christian, when I read the Bible, the whole Bible for the first time, and I got up to Job, I didn't know that story. And I was just like, oh, my word. I mean, all the things that happened to Job in that very first chapter, and Job didn't know the background behind all that. And um, at the end of that first chapter, it says, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And I just was stunned by that. And I started thinking about it, and I thought about it, and I started, I, think, I thought, I don't think that could be said about me if I lost all my kids, all my family, all my money, all, my, all these things. Um, and I remember stopping and praying and asking God, no matter what happens to me, God forbid that I would charge you with doing wrong. So the, some of these verses just stand out to you as you're reading the scriptures. And we need to think about it and think about what it's saying and pray through it. So let me just conclude by saying... God's goodness is a broad term and is, is like a cloak over all that he has done and will do. We are to acknowledge that goodness and praise him for it. We are to humble ourselves before him and express gratitude even in trials. We are to have the heart of David who longed to see the goodness of God. And we are to never cease to be amazed at our Lord Jesus' sacrifice of himself in our place on the cross. And lastly, we are to be like the little child who simply prays, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. But we would add, in our good shepherd's name, I pray. Amen. So let's pray. Lord, how precious that you came to earth, that you redeemed us from our sin, that you sacrificed yourself as a substitute in our place. And it is it's just astounding. And we, you are good. And people who don't think you're good, a lot of them are worshiping themselves. 
not you. And I pray that you will turn their hearts and turn their thinking toward you, that they would long, like David did, to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Lord, help us to be fully persuaded of your goodness and to love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Are you going to let me sit down? (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Now, watch me get up on this chair. I'll break my neck. (laughs) Oh, I heard about this little turquoise basket. It's cute. All right. Are there two of us? There are. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll ask him to answer. Okay. Well, then I'll move over. <laughs> Y'all don't look at me. Try to get up on this chair. <laughs> don't worry. No, I'm gonna sit in this chair so I can hold on to the yeah. thing. <laughs> okay. All right, everybody's staring at me, I can tell. Okay, we're good. Okay, am I on? And there's a lot of them. So it's going to be a long answer. Um, If you have a reference book or somewhere to send them, if it's going to be too long of an answer. We can direct the question toward Okay, or if I just don't want to answer, I'm just going to say, I don't want to answer that one. Is it good? All right, the first one says, please explain your statement that depression is not a chemical imbalance. Oh, boy. (laughs) I just did a big lecture at the ACBC conference in California on this. The the short version of that is it was always a theory and the uh, nerve cells in the brain and the rest of the body, they manufacture these nerve, uh, neuro cells that are neurotransmitter cells. And the little tiny cell makes the dopamine, serotonin, or norepinephrine, and then uh, secretes it through the cell wall, which is semi-permeable to the fluid space, so that there, the, the brain cells are not connected by bridges. They're floating around in the cerebral spinal fluid. And so when that, they have to have some kind of connection to communicate with each other. So serotonin is the one that most people target and think that because cocaine and methamphetamines, which are illegal drugs, stimulant drugs, they make the cells 
trick the cells into thinking you don't have enough serotonin. And so the cells kick into making more serotonin and shift out through the, the cell wall. The illegal drugs also change the permeability of the cell wall so that it can't shift back in. So the little cell thinks, I still don't have enough, and it just keeps making more. So what the drug companies did was when they devised Prozac, they took the chemical makeup of cocaine and methamphetamines, closely, more closely associated with methamphetamines, and tweaked it to try to get the perk up effect, because you will perk up when you take methamphetamines, um, but not the serious side effects that those illegal drugs do. So they really perpetuated this idea that there is a chemical imbalance of the neurochemicals in the brain, and that's why people get depressed. Now, I showed you four reasons why that contributed contribute to depression. And, but now there's been so much research done on the, quote, so-called chemical imbalance that there's the scientists are saying it's not a chemical imbalance. Whatever depression is, is not because you have an imbalance of the neurochemicals. So that's the short version. <laughs> Okay, the next question, it's a two-in-one. The first part is, what tips, advice, or counsel would you give to a recently married, soon-to-be first-time mom who was just saved from a feministic mindset? From a what? Feministic mindset. Oh. <laughs> well, if she, I, would, I would encourage her to go to a good, solid church and be fed and read her Bible and pray and just ask God for wisdom and just ask him to show you or show her if what she has been clinging to is true or not. That's what I would do. It, uh, most people have been influenced by the feminist mindset because we're just we're told that it's on the news it's in books it's uh, but this whole thing started the modern feminist movement was started in the 1960s um, by uh, Betty Friedan and she she studied psychology in Berkeley in California and she wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique. And if you've never read that, don't bother to read that one either. But if you want to, you can. I read it back when it came out. I thought it was brilliant. I read it several years later after I became a Christian. I was appalled. So she just made up a theory about why women are so unhappy and so passive and just miserable 
and it's, she thought it was because they just stayed at home and they didn't do anything worthwhile. Whoa. So, anyway, what, what was the question? I think you answered it. You had, you had said, the question was, um, what advice would you give to someone that was recently saved from that feministic mindset? Right. So I think you answered that. Her second part would say, um, how do you stay consistent with reading, reading and scripture and praying? Well, I wish I could tell you I have never missed a day reading the Bible. You know that's not true. Um, I have to depend on God to help me sometimes. Now, I have ever since I got saved and became a counselor, I, I've always wanted to have a Master of Arts degree in Biblical Counseling degree, but I never had that. And so I just... After years tick by and you get so old, you just give up on that. So uh, Kevin Carson's school in Missouri, the Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary, ha has offered an, an all online MABC degree. So I called him and I said, do you... And I know this doesn't sound like I'm answering your question, but I am. Uh, do you think I could do that? Do you know how old I am? And so he said, I think you can do it. Why don't you try it and see? So I started, I had to, there's a lot of work for that. A lot of books I had to read, a lot of papers I had to write. Our son told the family that, Dad told me that he wrote most of Mom's papers. He didn't write any of my papers. <laughs> but he did help me with the computer a lot. Um, but anyway, I spent so many hours every week doing that, then I just realized I'm just not praying like I should be, and I'm not reading the Bible like I should. So anyway, it took me a while to figure that out. But I, every, everybody has their own way of doing that. I've started, um, I like to read through the New Testament twice and then go back and read the Old Testament once. That's just me. So... Anyway, I, I, sometimes I fall short of that. And I know I don't pray as much as I should. All right, next question is, is there a biblically acceptable reason to take medication for depression? Oh boy, where did y'all come up with these questions? <laughs> um, When I first started counseling, none of my counselees, and this is back in 1989, they weren't on psychiatric medicine unless they were maybe on a tranquilizer. Um, there just weren't that many drugs out there. Prozac was coming 
along. And then after a while, just about everybody was on a Prozac-type drug. And they would come to me and, and they would... They, they didn't know each other, but they would tell me the same story that they had been told by their doctor. I have a chemical imbalance, and um, just like a diabetic has to have their blood sugar balanced, I have to have this antidepressant because I... Uh, have this chemical imbalance in my brain and it will balance that out. Well, it was always a theory. It was never, never proven. And um, so this went on for a few years. When, And then now I don't hear that anymore. They're still on the medicine. Some people, the... The thought for the psychiatrist nowadays is polypharmacy. Some people will be on four or five psychiatric medicines at the same time. So it is a problem. It's not going away. Um, and when you're on that much medicine, it, there's a lot of side effects. People don't like the side effects. Um, I wouldn't like it either. But they, what I do, a lot of my counselees that are on that kinds of, those kinds of medicines want to get off. And they come the very first time and they say, I've been, I'm on this medicine, this medicine, blah, blah, blah. I want to get off. Will you help me get off? And I say, we will talk about that later. Let me help you with your emotions and your thinking and your heart. And once I think that you're stable and you think you're stable, I'll give you some tips on what to tell your doctor because you're going to need your doctor to write the prescriptions for the lower doses. And um, then... You and then I will warn you of the withdrawal effects that you may feel, so you won't panic when you have a, a panic attack when you're trying to come off, or you feel like you have the flu, or you what a, you have these hot burning nerve flashes in your body. You feel like hot burning needles are sticking in you. Now, not everybody has that when they're withdrawing, but a lot of people do. But it will go away if you'll just hang in there. So I will try to prepare them for what to expect and what to tell their doctor. But at the very beginning, they just need to start honoring God and thinking right and getting saved if that's what they need to do. So... We just, I will help them. I've written a chapter, a couple of chapters in a new medical book that was edited by Dr. Charles Hodges. And the name of the book is The Christian's Medical Desk, Desk Reference, Volume 2. And uh, the chapter I wrote is 
What do biblical counselors need to know about psychotropic drugs? And it, years ago, we said, we don't need to know anything because we're not doctors, we don't prescribe medicine, but it is such a big problem now. We do, there's a, there are some things we need to know. So um, there's a psychiatrist in Boston, his name is Dr. Glenn Mullen, Joseph Glenn Mullen, I don't think he's a Christian, but he has been against pretty much against the Prozac-type drugs for years. He wrote Prozac Backlash years ago. and But he wrote a book. It was very interesting. It was called The Antidepressant Solution. And um, that book, he tracks you through several patients that he helped to go off of their antidepressants. And so if you're interested in the tips that he gives, his name is Joseph Glenn Mullen, and the book is called The Antidepressant Solution. It is not a Christian book. It's a secular book written by a doctor. All right, these next ones deal with divorce. First one says, how do I biblically encourage a friend who is in an abusive, sexually and verbally, marriage? She believes it's her duty to stay and pray because leaving him is a sin. Well, in a situation like that, I would have to have more data. I would have to ask her a lot of questions. Is her husband, I mean, abuse is the buzzword for today. Um, so I don't know it, it, if he's unfaithful to her, I believe that she probably has biblical grounds for divorce. Now, she would have to go to her elders in her church and explain the situation and ha help. they would have to give her counsel on that. Um, and then it, the Bible also says, let the unbeliever depart and the believing partner is free. So I, I just would, I would want to counsel her. I would want to help her and consult with the elders in my church if necessary. But I would... I just would have to know more information to really give a solid answer to that. Agreed. The next one is very similar, so I think your answer will, will be similar. If an unbeliever wants a divorce, as a Christian wife, can you pursue a divorce without sinning against God? And along those same lines, how do I remain committed and faithful to my husband as he pursues a divorce and refuses to have any contact with me and his children? Okay, so she is a Christian. She's married to an unbeliever, and he left her and is pursuing divorce. Well, can she pursue a divorce without sinning? Can she agree to it without sinning against God? Yes, I think so. Um, now, you a divorce is a law is a lawsuit, 
And so ultimately the wife can't stop her husband from divorcing her. Ironically, it's almost always the husband, if he leaves her and he's committing adultery and whatever, they just, these men won't divorce, file for divorce. And I, th- I have a theory. They, they're telling their girlfriend, my wife won't let me divorce her. She can't stop him from divorcing her. He can sue her for a divorce, and she would have to answer the lawsuit one way or the other. And then if she fights it, he would have to take it to a jury trial, which is grueling to do. But ultimately, she can't stop him from getting a divorce. All right, next question. How would you specifically counsel a woman who finds fear of man rise suddenly during conversations and interactions with people? Okay. I would have, I would want to know what goes through her mind when that happens and for her to jot down her thoughts and then bring them back for the next counseling session and let me see them because what she's she's self-focused and it's pride it's our sinful pride that makes us worry about what other people think about us or what they're thinking so uh, i would have that's a good question but i would i would think it had to do with repenting from pride and I had a um, lady that was in our church a long time ago, and I was teaching the ladies' Bible study, and she came to me and she said, I would like, I think God has gifted me, her, to teach, and will you help me? Will you let me do some teaching? And I said, yeah, I will, I'll kind of bring you along in that. So I would write out my lesson, and then I would assign her like a five-minute section of, okay, I want you to talk about this particular point and explain this reference or whatever. And uh, I just wanted to see how she would do. Well, some weeks she came totally prepared. She had on her makeup. She looked nice with her clothes on and how she was dressed. She never came naked, but (laughs) she did come looking like she'd just gotten out of the bed. And then she was finally, after a few weeks of this, and I was going to talk to her about it and say, I don't think this is your cup of tea. Um, She said, she came to me and she said, I don't know how you stand this. I said, stand what and she said teaching she said every time I do you know one of the little sections you give me I just all the way home all I can think about is well I must have looked stupid I must have looked dumb I wonder what they thought about me blah 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 she said how do you stand it I said that has never occurred to me 
their responsibility is to love me. And if they don't, that's their problem. <laughs> and if I do something wrong, their responsibility is to, in love, tell me. And I just have to trust God with that. So anyway, she quit doing her little blurbs, and I was happy about that. <laughs> but that's pride. It's just pride when we play it over and over in our minds of, well, what did so-and-so think about me, or what might they think, or please. It makes me tired. <laughs> this question says, how can I help a friend that was recently diagnosed as bipolar? Oh, well, you guys don't ask easy questions. Um, there, <laughs> the psychiatrists have come up with this, I call it their Bible but it's their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Supposed Diseases. But they know they're not diseases because they can't prove that they're a disease. If you read or Google their um, book and just read some of the things they've come up with, it's people... If, if you have this supposed, dis, they call it a disorder because they know it's not a disease. And so they'll, they say it's a disorder. But um, when, you, when a doctor tells you you have bipolar 1 or 2 or 3 or 4, there's several different, uh, bipolar 1 is the worst and it, they would have a psych, psychotic break and when they're manic -y. So, what was the question? How do I help a friend that was recently diagnosed? Well, I would give her hope that the Lord can help her, that she does not have to be controlled by that diagnosis, that she can turn from her wrong thinking and actions and again I would like to know and see bipolar is is just anybody's guess and is way overdiagnosed. I mean I've we're all bipolar to a degree. <laughs> um, so I would encourage her with scripture i would find i would want to find out if she has if she worries if she's has anxiety um, give her hope and just kind of be her friend and come along beside her the uh, it takes a while to get to know people and to, because if she said, I'm, I'm, the doctor said I'm bipolar, I, I might say, well, give me a couple of examples of that when you were bipolar. And so 
that would give you some hints of better maybe able to help her. The, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, which was started back in the early 60s, I think, or late 50s, by Jay Adams, he, they have a website, and they have all kinds of free resources on there. And it, they also have a find a counselor or locate a counselor near you if there is one. So you can do some research uh, to, to help her. Um, if she's diagnosed bipolar, she's probably been to a psychiatrist. And um, she's probably put on medication. So sometimes they'll put you on a stimulant medication um, if, for the depressed and then something to calm you down uh, when you get manicky. Now they have a, there's a new drug out there that they advertise on TV that has both of those kinds of medicines. So I, if I were counseling somebody like that, that would not be the first thing that I would do is say you need a psychiatrist. I would say, let's go to the Word and let's, let me ask you some questions because you, you really can't get any deeper inside a person than the thoughts and intents of the heart, and that's what the Scriptures do. Oh. Can you tell I'm not super big on the medicines? <laughs> because they are addictive and they're hard to get off of. And um, I think the Lord can help. I've seen him help so many hundreds of women over the years. And it doesn't take forever either. Would you say the same response about ADHD medicines? Oh. Well, ADHD medicines like Adderall and Concerta are um, stimulant drugs. They're chemically related to methamphetamines. And they used to be that they just would give them to children who were hyperactive well, every kid is hyperactive than I know, especially boys. Uh, but anyway, um, there is a book written by a pharmacist and an ACBC counselor. Two men uh, wrote a book, and I don't, I think the, the pharmacist's name was Dr. Grady, I think. And I can't remember the other guy's name, but it was, um, I think the title is ADHD or something like that. And they give a lot of solid reasoning for avoiding putting your child on something like that. Now, the day, the thought for today is adult attention deficit disorder.
Okay, can you hear me now? All right, I don't know what happened to my little thing. It just got tired, I guess. Anyway, this gal came to me. She was on five psychotropic medicines at the same time. And she said, I can't think straight. Well, nobody would be able to think straight on that kind of medicine. And so she was married. She had small children. She said, I can't function. I'm not taking care of my family, and I want to be able to take care of my family. And so she said, um, so she, went, she said, I went back to my psychiatrist and said, I'm, I'm on too much medicine. I can't think straight. And he said, I know what your problem is. You have adult attention deficit disorder. So he put her on Concerta, which was sick medicine number six. And so that perked her up. Well, it would perk you up too uh, if you were on it. And um, she said, I am willing to give up all of my medicines except Concerta. I love it. <laughs> well, it's, it's a slight dose of methamphetamines is what it is. So anyway, I, I just think there are ways to avoid um, <clears throat> putting a medical disorder, supposed diagnosis, on children and adults that there are other ways to control behavior with, with the Lord's help. Next question. Maybe an easier question. I'll take a break from Harbin for a second. If a young single lady that wants to get married but knows that she is not responsible enough, how would you advise her? <laughs> well, I would say get a job. <laughs> but I don't know how she is, and I would have to know more. If she's irresponsible, then she can, she needs help, some guidance with that, and some guidelines, and, and some accountability. Have you ever struggled with depression since you were saved? No, I have not. And I never struggled with depression even before I was saved, but I did struggle with the panic attacks. But the Lord supernaturally removed those from me. I never had another one. Now, that's not most people's experience, and I know that. Um, our daughter, Anna, was diagnosed four, four or five years ago with a very bad, aggressive breast cancer. And it was just out of the blue. I mean, we were, everybody was shocked. And I remember thinking um, she could die. And I, I remember um, when she called and told me the biopsy results, I started tearing up, and I wasn't sobbing, but I started crying. 
She said, Mom, I'm not crying, and you're not going to cry either. And I thought, I will cry if I want to. <laughs> so anyway, even now Anna has done extremely well, and as far as we know, she is cancer-free now. But um, I pray that prayer that I walked you through, the, Lord, my request is, my request was that Anna could have a cure. Um, but I had to add, but whatever would glorify you the most. And then I thanked God for reminding me how much I needed him. And I was very anxious and very scared and just couldn't get that off my mind. I mean, all day long I was praying that kind of prayer. All night long I would wake up and remember that Anna has cancer. She's going to have do, have this chemo, harsh chemo and the mastectomies and all that mess. And um, I would just pray that simple prayer. And But the Lord sustained me and I did not become depressed. I kept, by God's grace, teaching my classes that I was teaching. I was still, I'm a volunteer counselor at my church. I was seeing my counselees. Um, I was, I didn't, oh, I didn't feel like it a lot of times but I just made myself do it anyway. And um, that just, uh, Elizabeth Elliot said, just do the next thing. And that's what I was doing. And um, so the Lord, after about two or three months of me just having a lot of fear and then reaching out to God every time, um, one day the, his peace just settled over me and it, it, the fear was gone now that didn't mean she would have a good outcome I just think the Lord just promises that he's not going to let us be overwhelmed with our fear and um, so he, he helped me to get over that I had, um, the day that she called me and told me about her um, bad diagnosis, I, I was at church. And so I was in a meeting, but I went into the nursery where there was nobody so that I could talk to Anna. And that was the day she said, I'm not crying, you're not going to cry either. I'm like, all right, we'll see about that. And But then when I got home, Sanford met me at the door, and we just clung to each other, and we just wept. So it's okay to cry uh, if, if something sad happens. So anyway, did I answer the question? This one, I'm unsure on how she's saying it. Oh, so let me read the question first. What is the biblical perspective 
for women helping her husband financially. I don't know if that means her working or helping pay finances. I'm uncertain how they're asking that, but what is the biblical perspective for women helping her husband financially? Well, if, again, I, I would probably have to ask more questions and have more understanding of what they're going through, but um, I think if if there's a need and she is able to meet it, I don't see why she can't do that. Um, that's a different atti heart's attitude than just I'm a feminist and no man's going to tell me what to do and I'm going to rule my own life kind of attitude. So uh, I'm assuming that there there's a financial need and if she is able uh, to help out, then I would say do it. With your depressed Debbie scenario, at what point did you pause counseling and switch to evangelism? Well, uh, I always start out with the gospel, no matter who it is and or what their problem is. And um, I, I think it wasn't, I didn't just counsel her for a while and then start giving her the gospel. I gave her the gospel from the get-go. But I also gave her some hope and some tips on helping her to cope with some of the stuff. How have you been able to find a balance between being a strong woman and a respectful, honorable, godly wife and woman? There is no hope. <laughs> there, I, the, when I was writing the Excellent Wife book and I was writing the chapter on respecting your husband, I was on a roll. I was having a good day. I was typing real fast. I was, I had my outline. I was working on it. And Sanford came in and sat down in a chair by my desk and wanted to talk to me. Now, he doesn't normally interrupt me, or I don't normally interrupt him when he's on doing something, but it was important to him he had found out something he did not know about computers and he wanted to tell me. I could not care less about computers and I was very annoyed in my heart with him, but I didn't say that. I just looked at him and he just kept talking and talking and whatever he was talking about. And I gave him some nonverbal signals like sighing. He didn't get the point. He just kept talking. And then I rolled my eyes. That didn't help. And then finally, the Lord convicted me for crying out loud, you're writing a chapter on respecting your husband and you can't even pay attention to what he's talking about. 
So I asked in my heart God to forgive me, and then I was trying to pay attention to what Sanford was saying. I couldn't. Now I was totally lost. I didn't know what he was talking about. So he finally quit talking, and then he left, and he went into another room, and I, I just couldn't go back to writing. I found him, and I said, I need to ask your forgiveness. And he said, for what? And I said, for being disrespectful to you a while ago. He said, I didn't notice. <laughs> I don't know how he didn't notice, but it is, you can have a personality and have fun. And, you know, we've had fun today. We've laughed a lot and talked about a lot of serious things. And you can be a strong person, but you can be biblically submissive to the authorities over you. And you can be a joy to your husband and to God. So it's not an either or, you can be both. All right. Thank you, ladies, for all coming here today. We truly appreciate you, and I hope that um, you loved all of the topics and the, the sessions that we've done today and that um, God was honored in all that we did. So let's go to him in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for allowing us to have this time to gather here and just soak up this knowledge. I pray that we would apply it to our hearts and our lives and that our lives and our light would be richer because of it. And Father God, I pray that it would just make us bold women for your word, for your gospel, and that we could share that word and that we could share these biblical principles and, um, and ways to help others and help them priority to prioritize and then just to see that you ultimately are our source of hope and strength to get through whatever struggles that we may have in our life and uh, that we would just be bold to share your gospel and your love and your hope with them. I pray for Martha and Sanford on their way back home. Father God, we pray for their safety and just for this joy and the journey that they're on. And we praise you, Father God, for all of these women being here and able to um, put their daily lives on hold to sit here and learn about you, Father God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.